Bereavement Room is a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I am your host, Kolsima Ali. I'm Lydia Akobole, and you are listening to the amazing Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Tasneem Chowdhury, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hey, I'm Lakani Chowa, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Hena Shah, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, it's Amar, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, this is Vai Ramu, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I am Nikhwaz Khan and you are listening to the Bereavement Room podcast, or Kusuma Ali. Thank you for stopping by. Hi, this is Kal Singh Dinsa, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Good evening, friends. I'm Andrea. Thank you for listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the Bereavement Room Podcast. I'm your host, Kolsima Ali. I'm pleased to say that we are continuing to amplify voices from across the globe. The diaspora is huge. So we are back in the United States of America this week. And our guest, I'm thrilled to say, is Darwin Dave from Dealing With My Grief podcast. I want to dedicate this episode to our grandfathers and fathers. As always, thank you for listening. I'm so pleased to be joined by fellow podcaster Darwin Dave from Dealing With My Grief. Hi Darwin, how are you doing? Uh, I'm great, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, no you're welcome. I'm I'm really pleased that you're here. I'm a massive fan of your podcast Dealing With My Grief. It's one of my favourite grief podcasts out there. Can't wait to hear more about you know, how you deal with your grief and your your story about your father. So for a bit of background, my listeners like to know where people are from. And obviously, we've just expanded our listening over in the States. It's our second biggest listening base after the United Kingdom. So we were in Baltimore the other day and today we're in Washington, D.C. I mean, introduce yourself to all of my listeners. They love to know where people are from, what they do. So, yeah, go for it. Sure. So while I am in Washington, D.C. now, I am not originally from uh, the D.C. area. I was born and raised in a suburb of St. Louis, Missouri, which is um, for you U.K. listeners, which is if you're not familiar with Missouri, it's uh, in the middle of the country uh, next to the Mississippi River. Um, and I'm from a suburb uh, called Kenlock. And while you may not know that, a lot of people have heard of uh, Ferguson, Missouri, uh, Michael Brown, uh, Hands Up, Don't Shoot. Uh, if you've been, if you followed that a few years ago, um, the neighborhood I grew up in is literally right across the street from uh, Ferguson. So that's where I'm from. Uh, after joining the Army, I spent some time in California and in Texas and then ultimately wound up here in the D.C. area where I am an IT consultant. So nothing fancy there. Um, although COVID has kept me at home, it has also kept me employed. So I'm glad to say that uh, I am still earning a, a, a decent income. Oh, I'm glad to hear that you're safe and sound and it is really 
an uncertain time actually at the moment financially for the whole world um so yeah i hear you about still being employed um i wasn't furloughed i'm still employed also and i feel very grateful for that just because you know with this pandemic it sort of happened out of nowhere and um yeah i think it's been a really scary time for the entire world so like how have you been dealing with lockdown well I, you know it's one of those things where Oh, initially, it was a hard time trying to get food or just basic supplies. Now that it seems that things are sort of evening out in terms of stores having more things that are stocked on shelves and people not necessarily overrunning grocery stores, I'm finding the different supplies I need easier to come by. But one of the things I left out in terms of where I was from or what I did is I also spent eight years in the U.S. Army. So being out in the field and being without for extended periods of time is something uh, that I had gotten used to. So I've told myself that this is nothing more than really a long field exercise. So wow. <laughs> I'll, I'll have the basic necessities. I may not have more than that, but mentally I've prepared to go as long as I need to with having as little as possible. So I'm doing okay. Yeah. You're trained in this area. You're an expert. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. So, <laughs> I mean, how long were you in the army then? Eight years. I oh, spent wow. eight years. Yeah. Okay. And um, did they post you out somewhere or? I spent the bulk of my time uh, here in the States. Again, I was stationed um, in California, mm. in Texas, um, at the National Security Agency, which is basically about halfway between here and Baltimore. And I did spend eight months over in Saudi Arabia in support of Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm in 1990, 1991. So I flew approximately, I probably flew over your home if you're in the UK there, I, on the way there and on the way back. So that's about as close to you as I've gotten. Oh my God. I was probably only like three or four years old in 1991. Is it 1991? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I was still a child. Uh, you probably did fly over my home. I don't live too far from Heathrow if that's the way you were going. Um, so yeah, that's crazy. So your dad was shot dead in a shop that your parents own and I was wondering if you could kind of like talk us through before your dad died, uh, talk us through, you know, you as a 10 year old, not eight, nine year old, what your life was like, what your relationship was like with your father before all the chaos began. Sure. Um, in a word, my father was Superman to me. Um, he would get up every day. He had this vanity, go out and get all the different things that or most of the different things that we sold in the store. And the nice part about it was during the summers or weekends, if I wasn't in school, I was always with him. So one of my favorite places to go would be all the different places he would go to pick up candy. So you get potato chips or uh, Snickers bars or M&Ms whatever candies we were selling, he would go and pick those up. And as a 10-year-old, it was almost like going to 
Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory without Willy Wonka's name on the outside. We'd go to these places that would literally be about an airplane hanger size with candy from floor to ceiling, anything and everything that you could imagine. And being with him and then conducting or watching him conduct those transactions, going to the bank and actually seeing the ins and outs of how a business was run was something that was really exciting to me. Um, he would show up at one or two of my games, and that didn't really upset me because, well, while all the other parents was there, were there, I had a really under, decent understanding of the fact that he had work to do. He was working for himself, for my mom, for the family, and he couldn't really make it to all of the different events that we would, that I would have as a child. But just being able to spend time with him wherever he went was really a big deal to me. So while he was dad and I was the son, it was almost like we were buddies when we were hanging out together. Mm. It's a lovely close relationship you had with your father and uh, of typical of one um, when you're a child. And then, I mean, your story is very much of child bereavement. Um, I mean, I, I, I wasn't bereaved as a child. I was an adult when I was bereaved. So... Um, but I actually work in child bereavement. So I'm just curious to know, like, um, so your parents owned a convenience store, was it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I've heard, I've, I'm about 11 episodes into your podcast. I guess I'm taking it slowly because I really, I, I just love the way that you've articulated your podcast. It's brilliant. Um, so I'm sathering every episode, but I am only 11 episodes in. You have a um, long way to go. I do. Because <laughs> I, I just saw that you just posted episode 193 and I was like, oh, wow. Um, but that's all good because it's going to keep me busy for the next year or so. <laughs> um, but it, it's such a brilliant podcast and I want you to tell the story. So... Um, your your parents are in the store, and I mean, what do you remember of that day? This is kind of your moment to look back on, you know, how the events unraveled, what you were doing that day, perhaps. Well, the day started out like any other. Um, I got up, I got dressed, I went to a Catholic school. So the uniform at that time was a white button-up shirt and some green pants. <laughs> and I still remember the brown hush puppies that, uh, <laughs> that I used to wear. So I went off to school. The day was like any other. My dad dropped me off at school. He picked me up from school. And as the routine was, after I finished my homework, not only did my parents own a convenience store, we also owned some apartment buildings, one of which I grew up in. So after the homework was done, my biggest chore after that was simply to walk around and make sure that I picked up any trash that was laying around either around the store or around any one of those apartments. And once that was done, it was one of those things where mom would cook dinner, she and I would eat, and then we would always take him a plate because he was working in the store and the store would close at midnight. At around 10, 15-ish, 10, 30-ish, actually was at 10, 30. We left the store after feeding him, he was done, and we went home. Mm -hmm. I had some homework that I needed to finish, some math homework, and 
as I was doing this homework and eating a sandwich, the alarm for our store went off. Mm-hmm. Now, it was configured that if the alarm at the store went off, we actually had a horn that was in our home that would also go off as well. Okay. So when that alarm went off, one of the first things that my mother did was to call my father. Mm-hmm. And he didn't answer. So she hung up the phone and she called him back again. And he didn't answer a second time. So at that point, she and myself put our clothes back on because I'd just gotten out of my school clothes. So we put clothes back on, and she grabbed a gun that my parents had in the house, and we headed off to the store. Now, the store itself was no more than about maybe 150 feet from our front door, so it it didn't take us long to get there. I mean, so once we left the house, it was about maybe 30, 40, eh, I would say a minute, less than a minute uh, from there to the time we got to the front of the store. Mm. And as we were walking into the store, there was a person running from the store that was basically shouting that something had happened to my father. Oh, gosh. It just so happened that he lived across the street, so he ran across the street to call the police and an ambulance. Mm. And when we walked into the front door of the store, that is where we saw my father. He was laying face down uh, in a pool of blood, and I at that point, I'm I'm almost convinced that he was deceased at the, at the time that we walked in the store. But if he wasn't, he didn't pass long after we had gotten there. And the only real memory that I have uh, of being in that store after that was my mother was just simply screaming his name. Uh, and for context, my last name, in fact, is Dave, <laughs> like the man's first name. And all of the women in my family call their husbands Dave. <laughs> so. <laughs> All, 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 I, all I can remember, well, I should say all, but one of the biggest things I remember was my mother just screaming his name. She was like, Dave, Dave, Dave. And every time she would say Dave, I would just hug her a little tighter and say, Mom, it's going to be okay. Mom, it's going to be okay. Mom, everything's going to be okay. And not really knowing whether or not it was going to be okay, that was the only thing that I could think of to say to try to comfort her. And police came, ambulance came. And from there, it gets a little fuzzy. I just remember winding up in the hospital. And about five, ten minutes after we got to the hospital, the doctor comes out and then simply lets my mother know that there was nothing they could do for him, uh, that my father passed away. And at that point is when we started calling family members, friends. We called the family priest or the parish priest. And he came. And it was just it was just a moment of shock, awe, and sort of disbelief because it's almost like at that point I was living in a dream. Yeah, that's that's fucked up. I mean, you're 10 years old and you you saw your dad in a pool of blood. Yeah. That, yeah, um, it, that, that's 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 pretty surreal. I, it, and again, that's why I say looking at it then I can remember thinking to myself, you know, this can't be happening. Yeah, especially since I had just seen him literally 20 minutes earlier. It's like, I just left you. And tomorrow we're supposed to get up. You're supposed to take me to school. Um, and the worst part about the whole thing is that the day that he was killed was the night before my parents' 14th wedding anniversary. Oh. So they had plans. Mm. Um, and... 
I, I remember them having this bottle of champagne that they kept in the refrigerator that they were going to open on their 15th wedding anniversary. Mm. Um, and that's something that my mother actually did keep for a couple of years after the fact. But it was just one of those things where you've got all these plans and you think things are going to happen. It's like this just this can't be happening because this is just not the way things are supposed to be. Mm. Well, that's it, isn't it? We, we all have a plan of how things are meant to be. And uh, with a flip of a switch, that can change very yeah. quickly. Life very is really so. life is just so fragile. Um, yeah, that's hard, really hard as a 10 year old to, to see that, uh, traumatic, I would say. <laughs> well, you know, and, and as, as bad as that was, I, I guess, and I want you to say even worse because I probably would have done the same thing. The next day when my friends found, when my friends found out what had happened, they were all at my door. They were all knocking on my door and they just wanted to know what happened. Was it true? And I would say about 80% of them wanted to know what I saw. And so having to sort of explain that over and over again, six or seven times to a bunch of different people was a little weird. Um, it was even weirder to be carted off to the police station um, to be fingerprinted with my mom so they could distinguish our fingerprints from the perpetrators and then have to explain to them two or three times exactly what had happened. And it's almost like you're trying to, I, I was, I was looking at myself almost from the inside out saying, okay, well, this really can't be happening, but I'm being asked all these questions. So obviously this did happen, but still this can't be happening. It, it was, <laughs> it was weird to say the least. Mm, exhausting to answer all of those questions at that age when you're just processing it yourself yeah yeah so um you say that they were trying to distinguish the fingerprints and stuff and we're talking you know pre-dna and all this fancy stuff you may oh, yeah. either see on all these television shows mm. so at that point at that time standard course of action was to get fingerprints of people that were known to be in the store, in and around the store. And since the people who would have been there the most were myself, my mother, and my father, they took our fingerprints and were able to distinguish those from prints that were left behind by the perpetrators um, who left them on a counter. And uh, one of them actually had a can of soda uh, that they had picked up during the time of the shooting. So there were actually three people involved. Uh, one person who drove the car that was the getaway car and then two people that actually went into the store with my father. Uh, one basically distracted him and the other person uh, shot him. So that's sort of the way that worked. Mm, um, so, so they were essentially the perpetrators were people that were uh, breaking into the store to steal. Well, here's the thing. The store was open there. Essentially the two guys walked in and one of them asked for a pack of cigarettes and the other one went to uh, a machine that we had, a, 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 refrigerator that, a refrigerator that we had to get a soda. So the cigarette stand was literally at the back wall from the counter where we had our cash register and the customers, customers would pay for their things. 
So in order to get the cigarettes, my father or anyone would have had to have turned their back to whomever asked for the cigarettes to just get the cigarettes. And again, we're not talking about a big space. So we're talking about from the counter to the wall might have been 10, maybe 12 feet. So he turned around to get the pack of cigarettes. And as he was turning around, uh, the person who uh, shot him had produced a sawed-off shotgun. It's basically about a foot and a half uh, in length and shot him once in the chest and then reloaded the gun and then shot him once again sort of in the upper shoulder, sort of where your shoulder meets your neck uh, in that area. And it was determined uh, that that was probably the shot that killed him because if you were to look at the store, the scene itself, while my father was laying in a pool of blood, there were spurts of blood against the wall pretty much in all directions as he was falling uh, to the floor. So, yeah, it, it was it was a bloody scene. It was a bloody mess. But they didn't take anything. Um, he had some cash that was on him. It was approximately an hour before the store was going to close. So he was in the process of putting together receipts for the night that he was going to make uh, deposits for the next day to the bank. So he did have a little bit of cash on him. There was cash in the register. Uh, as a matter of fact, my father had a gun that was uh, in the store that he used or would, was going to use for protection. But again, it was one of those things where pretty much everybody in the neighborhood we knew, the three people who pulled this off were people from the neighborhood. My father didn't really have any reason for thinking that they would do any type of harm to him. So it was one of those things where you don't protect yourself from people that you don't think you need protection from, mm. if that sort of makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy, though. Like, they didn't really go in to steal anything. And I can't get my head around that. Like, it's senseless. Yeah, it is. And one of the things that I have always struggled with until recently, uh, which is actually one of the things I talked about in the latest episode of my podcast, is growing up, I never really wanted to know why, because I think for me, unless you're telling me that you were defending yourself and the process of self-defense that you killed my father, then there would be no reason for this to have happened. It wasn't like he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was simply in his place of business, mm -hmm. trying to do the best that he could yeah. for himself and his family. So I don't, and I don't think I will ever be able to really wrap my head around why that happened, but I'm quite sure that the guys who did this had some type of reason. Uh, and I've come around probably in the last six to eight months and really, and really contemplating trying to have a conversation with one of these guys to figure out exactly what in the heck was going through their mind that they would do something like this. What was the motivation? And, and again, not that it would be any answer that would be something that I could accept, if you will, but I just want to know why. Why do people decide to do some of the things that they do? And I don't necessarily think like a lot of people in society that everyone is specifically evil or crazy or a monster. I think that there is some underlying reason that people do the things that they do. Um, obviously, once you've lost someone, the law, once you've lost someone, 
and you're grieving those that person, the word normal becomes something that is a very abstract concept. Mm. You know, it's 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 when I when I think about all of the friends that I have, yeah. normal to them is getting up, going to school, having mom and dad show up at your games, having dinner every night. That's not normal to me, or at least it was until I was ten. Yeah. After I after my father died, normal became a very different thing. So I can only imagine that people go through traumas, through some types of stresses in their life, traumatic brain injury, maybe they fell, got kicked in the head, something it happens to about 95% of the people that we think are crazy or monsters that may lead to what they do. And, I, and I'm just trying to figure out if that was the same thing in this case. I know that I'm way off the beaten path probably, and this is, and this is a longer answer than you expected, but that's just... That's just where I'm in my headspace now. Mm. No, I, I I get where you're coming from. I I um I often wonder that as well. Why do people do what they do? Uh, you know, does something flip or change, or is it a chemical imbalance, or kind of what leads them to that action? Um, something's gone wrong somewhere. Um, so I, I kind of hear what you're saying there, why you're, you are where you're at with that. Um, it's, a, it's difficult. So I guess that kind of takes me back to you as a 10-year-old again. Um, what do you remember about like the days following? Like, Who was the person that was like your rock? You know, I imagine your mum must have been in pieces. Like, What was the dynamics like in your family? Well, um, the one thing that I can say is I have a very close and very tight-knit family, uh, not only on my mother's side, but also my father's side. So I had a lot of support personally in terms of making sure that I had all the things that I needed. So I had an uncle, uh, my father's brother, who I became really close to. Uh, not, I won't say immediately after, but we, we began to develop a bond probably about a month and a half, maybe two months after the one person who was able to explain things or sort of calm me down and give me some answers outside of my mom was my grandfather, um, her father. Um, we lived, I lived down the street from them. We lived down the street from them. They were about maybe three quarters of a mile away okay. from where we were. So I could always walk to their house, you know, like 10, 15 minute walk and I'd be at their place. And I would see them every day because the school I went to, um, well, actually the first, the very first school I went to was literally a block away from their house. Yeah. Um, and I went to third grade. And after that I had to move to a different school, but there were a lot of people in my neighborhood that I was related to, um, that would help me with that. The biggest thing really from my mom's standpoint after this all happened was our immediate safety. There was no idea at that time that the, the cup two or three days after my father was murdered, there was no indication of who had done this, why it was done. So I was stuck at home. So we talk about COVID now, um, I think I was allowed to go maybe 20 feet in front of my home, and that was pretty much it. So hanging out with my friends, riding bikes, all those things, that didn't exist. 
if you came to see me, we could sit out on the front porch, but that was pretty much about it. I wasn't really allowed to go anywhere. Um, my mom was my rock only because one of the things that she had said in the immediate aftermath of my father's death was that she would make sure that we had everything that we needed. And that was her job. That was her responsibility. And not that she said this, but she made it very clear that in some cases she may not know exactly how it was going to get done, but it was going to get done. And then she also told me that I might not get everything that I wanted, but again, I'd have everything that I would need. So she put me in a place mentally to expect that things would be difficult. And one of the things that I got from my grandfather was that, and my mom, my mom also, one of the things they tried to stress to me was that sometimes things in life just happen and life is going to be difficult. And that was sort of laid out by me specifically by my grandfather who was born in 1916. So my father wow. was born in the heart of Jim Crow here in the United States. And yeah. if, out of construction, there yeah. was this period of Jim Crow where uh, the rights of black people were suppressed, even though we were, yeah. quote unquote, free. Yeah. So he was born in Mississippi, the heart of Jim Crow itself. And my mother grew up uh, in an age of segregation. So my mother's teen years were spent in the mid 50s to where she had to go to the back of stores, sit in the back of buses, put money on counters to deal with people. So it wasn't the best of conditions for either of them. So I got a sense from them that while this was something that was tragic, for them, living everyday life was an adventure because you always had to wonder about looking at someone the wrong way, saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, so they always had they always had to walk on eggshells. So for them, everyday living in some way, shape, form, or fashion was tough. And what I got from conversations with both of them was essentially that, well, life is going to be rough, and this is really the first big thing that you have to deal with. And not that the rest of your life is going to be this way, but you just need to expect that things are not always going to go your way or things are going to be tough. And not to say that they said just deal with it, but what I saw from them is that they tried to reconstruct their lives very quickly and just simply tried to, I won't say move forward, but get back to everyday life. And that's what I saw from them. So what I learned was, okay, well, my mom eventually told me that she just thought that I would cry it out a week, two weeks, and then I would just be over, just move on with life. And and she literally said that, but I think she said that because, well, that's what they were conditioned to do. Something's going to happen to you. You'll spend a period of time being mad about it, being angry about it, being frustrated about it. But at the end of the day, tomorrow comes, the sun comes up, and you have to live for, the, for, for that moment for the day. And, and that, to me, was sort of the message. So that's just the way I conducted myself. Um, Dad died on a Monday. Uh, His funeral was on Friday, and by the time his funeral came around, that Thursday night or that Friday morning, the people who were responsible for this tragedy were arrested, and they were in jail. So things started to progress on that end a little quickly, and at that point, it was, you know, go to sleep on Friday, uh, do what you need to do on the weekend, wake up on Monday, and it was back to school. 
So, you know, it's time for you to continue to get good grades, come home and do chores. And that's sort of the way it was approached. Mm. And how do you feel about conducting it that way? Because I'm hearing that, you know, our parents are of a generation, this, you know, there's generations where for them, everything is survival. And you, you know, the next day is another day, right? It's a new day. And they are the survival generation is how I would describe it. They don't tend to talk about their emotions. Well, I mean, and you got, and, and you're right, because here's the thing. I don't think outside of the day that my father died and outside of his funeral, I don't think I really saw any of the adults around me display or express any emotion. But what I did get and what I always got from my parents, from my grandparents, was that, again, they would be able to handle things and things would sort of be okay. Um, I didn't talk a lot about what had happened to me or what, what was going on in my life. It was one of those things where I saw the adults around me doing what they needed to do. So in my 10-year-old, 11-year-old, and 12-year-old brains, it was like, well, I need to do what I have to do as well. And that's just simply go to school, come home, and it's just simply do what's asked to me. And, and looking back on that, again, uh, for me, a, a lot of what I feel about grief and the way I grew up and the way things happened in my life is really about perspective. So as I talked about, you know, my grandfather growing up in Jim Crow, uh, my mother growing up in a segregated society, they had things that they had to deal with and they had to come up with some type of mentality to deal with them. And the only thing sometimes you can do is project that onto the next generation or yeah. the people that, you know, you're raising. Yeah. And, and and I have to tell people when, when, when they when they say things to me like, well, you know, your mom, your, your grandfather, whatever was insensitive. I have to tell them that, OK, well, they were living real life. We read about this stuff in history books, but they had to live this stuff. So the lessons that they learned, they just simply passed down. That's it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I can't fault them for that. All I can say is the people that were around me did the best that they could with the resources that they had. Um, my mother could have easily have checked out, um, decided that she was just going to fend for herself tried to either get another man so she could be comfortable and forget all about my well-being. None of that happened. You know, so, yeah, did I struggle? Sure, I did. But I struggled with other people. So, so in a way, their struggle and the things that they had gone through, I sort of felt that I was going through something similar. I mean, now, obviously, I didn't think that at 10. But as I started to develop a philosophy of trying to move on through things I saw friends around me go through, I just simply had to, de to develop this philosophy that, okay, well, things were tough for them. Some things are going to be tough for me, but they made it. I'll make it too. Yeah, no, absolutely. I concur with that. I feel like we've, when it comes to our grandfathers and fathers and grandmothers and mothers, you know, we were raised by giants and because they went through something so difficult, they lived a time that you know, they had little resources and obviously racism and segregation and inequality, you know, the things that they went through in order for us to have what we have now. 
I, you could never really pay that back, I don't think, to that generation, what they endured. What do you remember about the funeral? Do you remember, so your dad died on the Monday and um, you had the funeral on the Friday? Yes. Yeah. Are you able to talk about it a little bit, what the goodbye looked like? or? Sure. So um, one of the things, well, there, there are a couple of things. Um, while myself and my mother was were Catholic or are Catholic, my father was a Baptist. So the weirdest thing about the funeral that I can remember is that the funeral itself was held in a Catholic church. And usually in a Catholic faith, you have the wake either a day before or the day of immediately preceding the funeral. And the funeral itself usually, in most cases, is a closed casket affair. Well, uh, with my father and his side of the family and other people that we're related to um, being different faiths, you know, we had this Catholic mass that actually was an open casket ceremony. So yeah, there was a viewing the day before that you could come to like a wake. But then there was one last time to see him um, before they actually closed the casket during the mass. And two things that really strike me, actually three things that really stood out to me during this time was when we walked into the church, the procession of the family. Um, my mother, she just, she couldn't go into church. And, and this was a church that we went to faithfully every Sunday. Uh, when I was a kid growing up and going to school in the church parish, I went to mass every day. So it was one of those things to see her not physically being able to walk into a church, knowing how much she believed in, trusted in, and was a very was a very religious person. For her not to be able to walk into the church past the front door was something that was sort of shocking to me. Um, two was my grandmother, my father's mother, is sort of in a state of disbelief. I would look at her every once in a while during this mass, and it was almost again as if I'm in a dream because to me it looked like she couldn't believe that this was going on and she completely broke down during the service. Uh, but one of the most striking things I think stood out to me was I had just started a new school. So I, uh, my life in schools is pretty strange. The very first school I went to was only a kindergarten through third grade school. So um, after third grade, I went to another school with a couple of buddies of mine but after an eraser throwing incident with my fourth grade teacher, at the end of that school year, I moved to a different school for my fifth grade year. So I started that school in, uh, in what, August? And then in April, my father died. Uh, one thing that was shocking to me is when I turned around to look at all the people that were at my father's funeral mass, everyone in my fifth grade class, with the exception of one person, was there to support me. So these were a group of people that were still getting to know me that didn't live in the same neighborhood I lived in. I should say that I was the only black person in my class and I lived in a different neighborhood than all of my white classmates. Okay. Uh, but, but, they, but, but they all came with the exception of one person. And I just found out literally about uh, six months ago that the reason that person didn't come was because the year before my father died, her father died, and she just didn't want to be put in that 
position. So I totally get that. And I totally understand that, you know, coming from a group of 10 slash 11 year olds. But those are the biggest things I, I remember about the funeral itself. Um, the other thing also that strikes me is uh, after the mass, we had his burial. And for the first time in a week after we left the cemetery, I do remember falling asleep in a limousine that took us home. And I think that was the first time I can I can actually say I got <laughs> some decent sleep, as hard as that might be to, to believe. But that's the first time I think I was actually able to relax. And I don't know if it was because I was just tired and physically exhausted or or, or what. But I, but I do remember that day after getting home was probably about the first decent amount of sleep I got. I slept through a repast. I, I went home and I just, I crashed. Um, I went straight from the limousine sleeping and I went home. I went upstairs. I changed clothes. I went to sleep and, uh, and, and I slept for hours. So, so those are the things that I remember about the mass uh, and, and that particular day. So why do you think he fell asleep straight away after? Is that kind of, did you feel it was like, um, I don't want to use the word closure, but you know that the funeral's coming and. Well, I, I think it was just after seeing everybody release all the emotion that they had released. Yeah. And for me, and it was sort of weird because also the other thing I remember about the funeral was I think, why well, not? Don't think I know I shed one tear. Uh, that entire hour, hour and 15 minutes of that mass. And uh, again, I think it was one of those things where I didn't really understand it until it was all over that this was real and this is final. I mean, this this really isn't a dream. Um, this, is re- this is really happening. But And I think once I came to that realization and once saw the emotion that everybody else was showing and that feeling sort of washed over me, it was like, okay, well, maybe I thought that, I don't know, I, there's going to be a lot of things ahead of me, and I just need to be prepared for whatever comes tomorrow. I just need to get some sleep. It's really hard as a child to go through something like that and to process it. And all these, uh, your classmates that came along, you didn't really know them that well at that point, I guess, and they all came along to support you. Did you have any feelings about that at the time? or? Well, yeah, I, I thought that I, I was I was shocked, but I was pleased that they would, I don't necessarily say, want to say take the time out, but they would actually come to support me against someone who was really a newcomer to their group. And I guess when you're 10, the one thing, at least for me, I believe is that as your child, all children want to do is to be accepted by somebody. And as a person who was an outsider looking in, there there were so many different things about the dynamic to me that I thought was going to be challenging. So as I mentioned before, um, out of the class of 15, 16 of us, I was the only black person uh, in the classroom. You know, everybody else uh, there was white. Uh, we lived in different neighborhoods. Uh, while socioeconomically, we're all doing about the same um, it wasn't like they were filthy rich and I was poor. We were all pretty much on an even level as far as what our families did, in- income level and stuff of that nature. But it was just one of those things, again, to be someone who's coming in 
and these kids have been going to school together since they were kindergartners. I'm already trying to fit in and you're trying to fit in. And all of a sudden I'm that guy. I'm that guy who now is the one who has a single parent or, or now from a single family home. Um, I've already got a complex that people in the neighborhood are going to look at me a different way. How are the kids I go to school with going to look at me? Not just the people in my class, but the rest of the people in the school. Um, because now everybody knows that my dad is dead. How are they going to wind up treating me differently? Are they going to not want to play with me at recess? Are the conversations that we have in school now going to be different? I really didn't know exactly what to expect. But all of that was sort of washed away from me when they showed up uh, at the funeral. So that to me was some kind of confirmation that, okay, well, we could be friends. We can continue to be friends. But more importantly, they're not going to see me any differently than they had seen me the week before. So for me, that was really something that was comforting. Yeah, that sounds really lovely. You weren't singled out and you weren't bullied um, for it, for, you know, being the child that didn't have a father and a single parent, as you say. Because I often hear with child bereavement, when kids have to go back to school, that they get bullied in the playground a lot. Um, Or kids don't believe that, you know, their parent died because they've all got their parents and you know if it was something sudden or expected it's like a real shock to them we hear that a lot in the UK but um I think that's really lovely that they were there for you and they showed up essentially it kind of brings me on to counseling um I did not receive any counseling now my mother says that she asked me if I thought I needed to talk to someone and if she's ever asked me that I don't I I do not remember that conversation at all So um, I did not receive any counseling whatsoever. Literally, dad died on Monday. He was buried on Friday. I woke up on Monday morning and I went back to school. Um, And again, it was one of those things where we're back to life as normal. So I did not see or seek or have any professional help. Uh, there were no counseling services or anyone that offered to come speak to me when I was at school. Mm. Um, again, it was one of those things where we're going off grief, cold Turkey. So last week was your week to grieve this week. We are back at it and we're back at, at, to life as as normal. So no, um, I didn't have any counseling, uh, to the second part of your question. Do I believe in it? Um, sure. I believe that. As long as people have someone to talk to um, and that they are willing to be open and honest about how they feel and what they're going through, I I believe in counseling, therapy, whatever you want to call it, 100%. Um, Specifically, when it comes to grief, because a lot of times, not even a lot of times, in most cases, or in all cases, you're going to wind up carrying grief a long time. You're going to carry it with you until, well, the day you die. At least yeah. I think that's the way I feel about it. Yeah, exactly. And the longer the longer you get away from the event itself, the less people want to hear about it. So for me, if you're seeing someone, a therapist, counselor, whatever, you're talking to a third party who isn't living your life every day, 
who is not going to judge you for the things that you say or the way that you feel or that or that or people or they're not going to be, quote unquote, tired of hearing about it. Yeah. So if you can speak your truth and you can find someone to listen to you and help you through that, whether they're licensed or not, um, I, I'm all in for that. Uh, if I'm all in for that. So, yeah, sure. I believe in that process 100 percent, even though that's not something that I have any personal experience with. I don't begrudge anybody who wants to seek counseling. I don't begrudge anyone who's been in counseling for 10 years. I, you know, if do what helps you, that's all I tell people, whatever you're comfortable with and whatever you think is going to help you, then feel free to do that. And, you know, don't worry about how people are going to judge you because you need to see someone. That's something that you need to do for yourself. Mm, no, absolutely. I agree. It's a very individual and personal thing and it should be with what feels right for you. But I guess I'm just curious to know, have you, you know, it was a very traumatic thing that you went through as a child, and I, I get that you didn't have any therapy as a child, but did you ever access any therapy later in life, or? No. No, I didn't. Um, I came up with, uh, really after high school, I think, once I once I left high school, I think the most damaged parts of me were beginning or could actually then begin to heal. Um, also, until I was about maybe 20, 21 years old, I had a personal opinion that if for whatever reason you didn't experience things the way that I had experienced things, there was nothing you could do or say to help me. So if you hadn't walked into a store and saw your father lying in a pool of blood, then regardless of how much you studied, regardless of what you had been through, it didn't really matter because, uh, like I hear a lot of people say, if you didn't go through what I'd gone through, then you have no idea of how you're going to be able to help me or what to say to me. So, and, and that was my mindset type until literally, literally my early 20s probably. Um, I didn't necessarily want to talk to it, talk about it because – there was nothing you could say to me, even though I didn't know it all. Again, there was no way you could possibly know what I was going through unless you'd been through what I'd gone through. And, and that was just my mindset. I was yeah. I was a very closed off minded person at that point. Yeah. No, he. Um, yeah, I've got no words for that, really. I mean, um, that's what your process was like during those years, which kind of uh, t takes me on to we all need our parents, right? Especially in our teenage years or young adult years, coming of age, whatever you want to, well, however you want to put it. Um, who was your father figure role model then in your teenage and young adult years, would you say? Uh, my grandfather, my mother's father, followed very closely by my uncle, my father's brother. Uh, those were the two people that um, I... That I pretty much learned all the life lessons from a male standpoint from. Um, my grandfather, again, lived down the street from us about three quarters of a mile. Mm. I would see, we would see my grandparents every day. Hello. So he, he, he was the person, again, that, that became my go-to person if I needed something or if I needed to ask a question of anyone. Yeah. He was the person I would go to because literally he was right down the street and I saw him every day. Um, so on the weekends, there were some weekends I would spend with my uncle, 
he, we would hang out, go do different things. But the number one person in my life was my grandfather. Definitely. That's really, really nice that you had your grandfather as the father figure role model, um, which kind of takes me on to ask about, did you get justice for your father? And I know that they were arrested and I've listened to the episode. Um, Kind of talk us through what that was like for you and your family. Well, a lot of that, I won't even say a lot. Most of that I was physically removed from. So while I did not attend the trial, my mother did. And from reading transcripts as I got older, there were a lot of emotional things that my mother had to go through in terms of explaining pretty much what I explained to you, what happened the night of my dad's murder. Mm. Uh, She got to see the murder weapon itself for the very first time. Uh, and that's when I understand she broke down and cried and they had to recess court because she was just emotionally overwhelmed. Yeah. But at the end, but at the end of the day, um, essentially what happened, there were three individuals involved. The person who was the driver of the, uh, the driver of the car got 10 years in prison. The person who went in the store with the gentleman who was convicted of shooting my father, he got 15 for being an accomplice. And the person who actually pulled the trigger or was convicted of pulling the trigger was convicted of capital murder. And here in or in the state of Missouri, uh, that is a minimum sentence of well, actually it's a life sentence with a minimum of 50 years before he's eligible for parole. Uh, he was initially given the death penalty but that was subsequently overturned about four or five years later. So he is currently in prison in the state of Missouri. And when you talk about justice and was justice served, that is a very good question. And again, one of the future, probably next week or week after um, uh, episodes that I'm going to do for the podcast, because I have to ask, actually have to think about that about seven, eight months ago. I wasn't even that long. It was about four or five months ago. I got a letter from the state of Missouri saying that the person who was convicted of killing my father actually has a parole hearing in April of 2023. And that was shocking because as a kid, as a 10 year old, you hear that somebody's going to be in prison for 50 years. You think that's forever. Cause I mean, when you're 10, 50 years, yeah. seems to be <laughs> such a long way off, yeah, right? Does. And I'm thinking, okay, well, now it's been like 42, 43 years, and here I am, 52 years old. Three years from now will be the 45th anniversary of my father's murder, and that's when he's going to have a parole hearing. Even though he won't be eligible for parole for another five years, his initial hearing is going to be literally now yet less than three years away, or, yeah, less than three years away, about two years, 11 months. And the only way for me to find out what has happened to him while he's been in prison and to find out exactly what he's been doing is for me to make an appearance at this parole hearing. So I now have to figure out, A, do I want to go? B, what am I going to say? And then I have to question everything that I've been thinking about over the last 40 years because, well, the guy who shot my father was convicted, I need to say that, was convicted of shooting my father was 24 years old at the time he went to prison. So by the time he gets out, he will have spent two-thirds of his life 
in jail. Is that enough for me? Am I able to say with all of my Catholicism, Christianity beliefs, whatever you want to call it, is that enough for me to say, okay, well, you've paid your print, your, your, your penalty? Or do I say, well, you know what, even if you walk out of jail, my father's not coming back, so you need to actually stay in jail longer. So I'm actually wrestling with those feelings, even though I have forgiven him for what he's done. And I know a lot of people have a hard time believing that when I say that. But even though that that's happened for me, I still have feelings of when is enough enough. So from a justice standpoint, from a legal standpoint, yeah, the, the legal system has done everything for me that they can do. Uh, from a personal standpoint, there are other feelings I still I still wrestle with. And I'm not afraid to say that. Mm. It'll be I'm looking forward to that episode. To, to so, see yeah. to see where your process is in the next couple of weeks, months about whether you do attend. Um, it's a tricky one. Um, I hope that you're able to derive to an answer that's going to be comfortable for you. Do, you. do you know if it's something that your mum wants to attend? Has she spoken to you about it? Well, my mother um, passed away in October oh, 2018. Gosh. Oh, gosh. So, and the only way that any of this has come about, really, well, the only reason I've gotten as involved as I have was because when I called the state um, to let them know to transfer any information about him from her over to me, because essentially what happens is when you are, as part of the victim's rights, you have a right to know when the person who's been convicted of a crime has either been released from jail, has escaped, has a parole hearing. So if, if anything happens as far as their status in the court system, is concerned, you have a right to know, you have a right to voice your opinion in terms of the parole hearing, in terms of what happens. So when I called the state to let them know that my mother had in fact uh, been deceased or had died, and I wanted to convert all that stuff from her name, her phone number, address, and stuff like that to mine, um, that's when I found out that they would shortly be sending out information about an upcoming parole hearing. And again, that information I got, I want to say about four or five months ago. It, I don't even think, again, I don't even know if it's been that long, but about four or five months ago. Yeah. So, um, and, and that's the other part that I struggle with. Um, because one of the things I didn't tell you either, <laughs> uh, is one of the things I found out when I contacted the state of Missouri is I found out that the person, uh, wrote my mother an apology letter. Oh, wow. Uh, and it was up to her to receive it, and she chose. She either chose not to receive it, or maybe she didn't know that it had been written. But it had been written about eight, about eight years ago, actually. Um, so I did, in fact, receive that, and I read that. And part of me struggles with what would I want versus what would my mother want. And I think I'm in tune with how both of us feel about this. And again, it's just a struggle to know whether or not I would say and or do the right thing if present at a parole hearing. But again, that's something that I'm processing now to figure out what and how I want to handle things. Mm, and can I ask, what would your mother have wanted? Do you know? Or can I ask that question or not? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that my mother would be okay with him being released. Um, at some point about 
15 years, eh, what even 15 years ago, but at some point about 10 years ago, she was already under the assumption that he had been released from prison. And I don't know how she figured that out. I think she ran into a family friend who told her that they had seen this person in a grocery store or someplace out on the street. I can't remember where, but I had to confirm with the state of Missouri that he was still in prison. So the fact that my mother would not have called someone to express her concern leads me to believe that she would be okay with him being out of prison. Again, myself, I don't know how I feel about that. Again, I can forgive you, but it's a hard, I have a hard time forgetting. (laughs) Yeah, of course you would. (laughs) So, 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 so that's what, so that's where the struggle for me lies. That is really where the struggle for me lies. Yeah. You never forget. You'll never forget. So, yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Which kind of brings me on to ask, because we've got opinions about it in the UK. Should guns be banned in America? Man, I knew that was coming. That's the one one question everybody asks me. Um, And you have no idea what people who know my story try to put a microphone in my face and ask me about that any time there's a mass shooting here in the U.S. But um, from my own personal standpoint, I don't necessarily think that guns in general should be um, banned uh, in full disclosure. I own a firearm myself. I do actually have um, a pistol. Um, but I only use it really for target shooting and being in the military, you go out and you wind up shooting at targets every so often. That's just something that I've come to actually enjoy, but I don't buy personally. The whole thing is I need to have an AR 15 or a machine gun for self-defense. Um, I think that people try to make excuses for why they need the things that they really want. So if you want to have a a firearm, that's fine. But having a cache of 20 rifles, six machine guns, and all kinds of other stuff, I think there's a point where you can go overboard. And I think that I wouldn't necessarily say the problem here in America, but I think the problem with people in general is if you tell people they can have something, they will want things regardless of whether or not they need them. Um, so that's my PC answer on that. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I like it. So then I might try and challenge you a little bit more then. Okay. Do do you think it should be very hard to get hold of a gun, like restrict the laws, tighten up the law? Well, the, the, the problem with that, at least here in the United States is that we've tried that. And for some reason it doesn't work. Uh, people who want to get guns will, will get them. And unfortunately, if, if for those out there who have no idea how things work in the States, I personally believe that every time that they create a new law, they intentionally leave loopholes so people can do what they want to do. And and, and And I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. I think it should be harder to get, but as long as you have people who are willing to do anything for money, will always have a problem because there will always be people who try to sell items on the black market. So once something becomes illegal, well, instead of being able to buy it from a reputable gun manufacturer for $1,000, it'll now sell on the black market for $3,000. And as long as I know that there's a payday on the end of it for me, then what do I care? Um, I'm not saying that I feel that way personally, but those are a lot of people's personal opinions. It's all about 
the dollar and forget humanity itself. Um, you can even see that reflected in the coronavirus that we have today. Well, we can wear masks, but I don't want to wear a mask, so screw everybody else. If I get sick, then maybe other people get sick. But at the end of the day, I'm going to do what I want to do. So, I, yeah, I think it should be harder, but I think the harder you make it, 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 it's just one of those things where, you know, people will find a way. And I don't know how they do that in the UK or in other countries, but here in the States, that's just the way things seem to go. You can make it as hard as you want, but people want, will find a way to get what they want regardless. Mm, true. That's a true point. People always find a way no matter what. And actually, you're right. There's just not enough love and humanity. <sighs> Something that I... Uh, I struggle with every day. I feel like there needs to be more love in the world. It's it just feels like we live in a time where that just doesn't exist at all, or it's not at the forefront of people's minds even. Um, but the mask issue, well, that's another podcast. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I just threw it out there. I, I wasn't trying to start anything, but I but but people ask me it all the time, and 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 with what we're going through now. That's the only thing I can sort of liken it to. You know, people all say they want to do one thing, but if it's something that rubs me the wrong way, then I'm going to do what I want to do. And, and again, I don't know if that's just an American thing or if, if it's something thing. that happens other places. It's but a human it, being thing. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's, I know it's prevalent here. I can't speak for any place else. <laughs> I can only speak to what I see. Yeah, <laughs> no. I no, I've, I've, I'm sure we have those issues in the UK. You know, I take a, we're allowed to go out for walks as, or exercise as many times as we want, whereas before it was just once a day. And I, I always go out for a walk in the evening and there's loads of people not wearing masks. And they'll just give me weird looks for wearing a mask. And I'm like, well, I don't know why you're looking at me like that. Like I'm right. protecting you and me. So there's no right. staring at me just because... I look like I'm about to enter Call of Duty. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I do. I do. I really do. Oh, Man. God. People are stupid. Anyway, that's another podcast. So moving on, I wanted to really talk, of, talk about uh, triggers with you. I really enjoyed yeah. your episode on triggers. So you're talking about cheese and ham, ham and cheese sandwiches. Sorry. Yep. Yeah. So uh, you used to like ham and cheese toasted sandwiches, is that correct? Yes. I used to love them. I used to eat, I used to eat them almost all the time. Um, and it's funny because I didn't really stop eating ham and cheese sandwiches until I was probably 13 years old. So I even continued to eat them well. And let me back up and explain. Um, when... The night my father was killed, um, I was doing math homework, eating a ham and cheese sandwich. So it's weird that three years after the fact, I was eating a ham and cheese sandwich in our kitchen, doing homework. And all of a sudden, I just sort of felt myself almost just get physically ill. Um, and it was right around the time of, at that point, would have been like his third death anniversary. And I was like, you know what? I just can't eat these anymore because this is just too weird. So since then, I haven't eaten a ham and cheese sandwich. Now, surprisingly, 
because um, people have asked me, well, what about math? Do you hate math too? And no, math is actually um, my favorite, was always my favorite subject in school. And one of the things I have historically done well in as far as uh, my academic pursuits. <laughs> so I can't explain why I love one, but I hate the other. But yeah, ham and cheese, yeah, can't do it. I can eat ham, I can eat cheese, but I cannot eat them together between two slices of bread. That just doesn't happen for me. Wow, that's so, that's mad. You, <laughs> you, it's crazy, isn't it? The triggers that you have, it's fucking crazy. Because uh, yeah. I've got the thing with fried chicken at the moment, because my dad died early on in the year, and we used to do this thing where we'd always get like a bucket of fried chicken. Right. And my dad really loved his fried chicken, right? And I I struggle. I can't even look at fried chicken at the moment. Right. I understand. And, and I don't know when I'll ever eat fried chicken again, if I ever do. Now, is it just fried chicken or can you eat, can you eat like baked chicken? I can eat, I can have chicken in curries, baked, roasted. I can eat chicken, just not okay. fried chicken. Fried chicken. Yeah, I got you. I understand completely. I, you will get you will get no questions from me because most people may not understand that, but I completely understand that one hundred percent. And I don't I know, it. but why? Do you know the answer? Is it like uh, well, a horrible thing? Uh, well, yeah, because it, it's tied to something that brought you joy, right? So, if it, it's one of those things where, for in my family, Sundays was a big thing. Uh, my grandmother would have a cake pie, whatever, every Sunday. And it was just one of those things that was just part of coming from church on Sunday and stopping by her house. There were there was a long period of time for me where after she passed, I just couldn't eat a piece of cake on Sunday because I just always thought about her. It was something that brought me joy. And it's one of those things where you can try to do it, but if dad's not there to enjoy the breast while you're eating a wing or a thigh or whatever your favorite piece happens to be, then there's no joy in that because it's something that you can't do together. At least that's, that's the way I feel. But for me, my trigger is it was something that was associated with a bad event. So whether it's good or whether it's bad, I think that's why it's the trigger because it's something that you guys shared. It was something that he did either for you, for yourself, for the family that brought you joy. And it's something that you don't want to do because you can't do it with him. Yeah, that's so, that's a hundred percent. Like you're on the money there. It's true. It was such a thing that brought joy and I can't do it anymore. Um, it'd be weird to have a bucket of fried chicken just with me or with anyone else. Right. That was the thing that I shared with my dad. But yeah, I mean, when I was listening to your episode, I kind of resonated with, I found that interesting and I resonated with that, but I hear you. So it was it was related to a bad event. That's why you can't eat ham yep. and cheese I, sandwiches. That, yep, that that's it for me. And like I said, you know, I, and I think even in an episode, I said I was laying across my parents' bed, eating a ham and cheese sandwich, doing some math homework. I hate ham and cheese, but I love math and I can't explain that. Well, you know what? I think I can. Uh, my father was the person who got me to fall in love with math in the first place because he was a person who taught me how to count um, in a weird way. He taught me how to count using money, really. Um, 
being an entrepreneur, one of the things he would do is he would teach me how to make change, but how to count sort of at the same time doing some different things and different techniques. So I think maybe I held on to the math because that was something that a skill that he, in fact, did give me or did introduce me to. And that is something that I found that was joyful, which is sort of odd because that's opposite of your 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 love and not being able to eat fried chicken. But I, but maybe that's it. Maybe it was the one thing that I could hold on to to sort of keep him alive for me. Um, and I've just now had that epiphany in this moment, not, not, not that we're talking about it, but maybe that's it. Maybe for me, it was a way of being able to connect and hold on to him in some way, shape, form, or fashion. And maybe that's where my love of math comes from. But the ham and cheese thing, no, nah, I can't do it. <laughs> oh, God, I, great. I know I've said that three times now, but now I just, I can't do it. I, I can't yeah. do it. It's a definite, you're definitely not going to eat ham and cheese sandwiches ever no, again. No, no, no. If I were Superman, that would be my kryptonite. I cannot do ham and cheese oh, sandwiches. Wow. God, grief is so crazy, isn't it? Like, the things that happen and how you feel and the triggers and stuff. Like, yeah. 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 Give me a slice of ham on a plate, I'm fine. You know? Uh Give me a cheese sandwich, I'm fine. But the two of them in combination, nah, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Which kind of now brings me on to dwelling then, because I really enjoyed your episode on dwelling over stuff. How do we move on from dwelling and overanalyzing something that was never in our control? And the reason I want to ask you that is because I think that's something that I struggle with very often um when I'm trying to join the dots up in my head so when I was listening to that episode I was just curious to know how did you get to that stage of no longer dwelling well that's natural because even when my mother passed away and she had dementia even when she passed away I would always ask myself if there's something I could have done to either have had this diagnosed earlier to make her a little bit more comfortable in her final days, what have you. But as it relates to my father, there were a number of different variables. Um, And to give you some perspective, just in thinking about the overall event, there are a couple of things that were floating around in my head. The first was he died literally 30 minutes after we saw him. Mm Mm-hmm. So then the next question is, well, what would have happened if we stayed 30 minutes longer? Would he still be alive? But then the flip side to that is two guys walked in with at least one gun. I don't know if anybody else had a gun on them either. So the flip side to that is I started to process that. And, it, and this didn't really hit me until years later. It's like, okay, well, if we just stayed 30 minutes later, maybe we'd all be dead. I don't know. So as I started to manage and started to think about and process the woulda, couldas, and shouldas, what would have happened if, I realized that I can't really think about that or dwell on that because, well, if things had been different, the outcome could have also been very different as well. Maybe Mm -hmm. the guys leave, but maybe none of us survive. 
Yeah. And for me, it was just easier instead of trying to play which came first, the chicken or the egg type of thing. It was just easier for me to say, you know what? I can't worry about this or dwell on this anymore because one, mentally, it was just too draining. And then two, I'm never really going to come up with an answer. All I can say is in my heart of hearts is the only people that were responsible for this whole situation were the people who actually murdered my dad. That's where the fault lies. I'm not at blame. And I can't hold myself. I can't hold my mother responsible for any of this. It's just something that I have to come to terms with. Things happen the way that they happen, and I can't change them. But I love my dad. I didn't do anything wrong. And I think that's where the biggest thing is. It's not like my dad died because... You know, I left the door unlocked and somebody snuck in the house in the middle of the night. You know, that type of thing I would probably have guilt over for the rest of my life. You know, so it wasn't something that it was a causational thing. I didn't do anything to cause that. It was something that just simply happened. And while it's hard to accept is such a bad word, that's the only word that comes to mind right now. But since that's something that's just difficult to accept, that's just the way it is. And not everything in life is always going to make sense. And I can beat myself up over it over and over again, but that's not going to change anything. No. Um, so, but yeah, it took, it took me a long time to get there. It, it, it took me a real long time to get to that point. Well, no, I'm I mean, just it, saying I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't beat myself up over it because I had no control over it. So mm -hmm. for me, once I realized that I wasn't in control of the situation, and I didn't cause his death. It wasn't something that was related to something that I had done or that my mother had done. The only place where guilt lies were with the people who had committed the crime. So at that point, I was able to put myself at ease somewhat or at least remove myself from the blame line because I think that's what it was for me. It was just trying to figure out, you know, why or why did this happen or how could I get over this or the woulda, couldas and shouldas, as I said, it was just one of those things that just allowed me to move a little bit forward uh, from that and start to process some things in some different ways. Yeah, I guess what you don't know, you don't know, right? Um, so when something's out of your control. And that's it's... true. But the other part of that, about that too, um, Halasuma, is... When my mother passed away, and I know this episode is about my dad, but when my mother passed away, there were some things that were really confirmational for me. And that was, I, you're right, I don't know what I don't know. However, I knew that my mother had dementia and I didn't know how long she had. So mentally, I was preparing myself for the day. So I knew that when she got sick, that she was on the downside. And at some point, I have to say goodbye to her. And... What I tell people all the time is, even though you know or you may know that something's going to happen, even the time that you're given or that you think you have, you still can't prepare enough for that person's absence. I know it's even rougher when you lose someone that you don't expect, like in a car crash or, in my case, my father's uh, murder or some kind of violent crime. I know it may be tougher then, but even if you have time, regardless of how much time you have, it never seems like enough because you're never as prepared as you think you will be. Um, and again, that, that's just me personally. 
So uh, that's why I tell people all the time, you can think you're prepared, but you're never as prepared as you want to be. And you're never going to be prepared to say goodbye, um, even if you know it's coming. So, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if your dad was ill, if it was something that was um, unexpected. But, you know, again, you can't really blame yourself for things that happen if they're out of your control. And even if you have time, the time you have is never going to be enough. That's it. That's exactly it. It never feels like there's ever enough bloody time. And it's especially like that when it's unexpected. But there we go. You know, it's been really great chatting to you, uh, just getting to know you on the podcast. Um, we're kind of getting to the end, really, to wrap up. And I, I was wondering if you could share any memories of your father, like ones that stand out to you, any favorite memories up to you? <laughs> yeah, I do. There's one in particular. Um, well, actually, there are a few, but I'll go with one. My mother, before she quit her job to help my father full time in the store and to help him pursue his entrepreneurial dreams, she had a job working for the state government. So uh, one summer, my dad was going around trying to get the things that he needed to get done for the store done. And we only had one car. So he and I would go pick my mother up after she got off of work. And one day, as we were headed to pick her up, we ran out of gas. So he spent about, I don't know, maybe half an hour, 45 minutes. We had to go to a place, buy a gas can, and then get that gas can full, filled, and then go back to the car to put gas in the car. Because, well, he didn't have any money for a tow truck or anything else. So this took us about maybe, like I said, maybe about 45 minutes, maybe an hour. Now, again, this was probably 1976, 77. Mm -hmm. So this was pre-cell phone. And you would have to find a pay phone someplace to make a phone call. So by the time we get to my mom's job, we're about an hour, hour and a half late. And she's furious. So she gets in the car and she's like, well, how come you're late picking me up? You should have been here an hour, hour and a half ago. And she's just, she's lighting into him and he doesn't say anything. So I'm sitting in the back seat and I put my hands up on the headrest of both of their chairs, one arm on either side. And I look at her with a straight face and I say, dad ran out of gas. <laughs> and he looks at me and that's the first time that I, I, I could, that's the first time I heard anything technically about quote unquote guy code. Cause he looked at me with his face as if to say, you could have said anything other than that. Uh, about, about three weeks later, we laughed about that and we joked about that a lot, uh, a couple of times before he passed away, but that is probably my most endearing memory that actually includes all of us. Uh, but he just looked at me with a face as if he could stare through me. It's like, why'd you have to say that? You could have said anything else. You know, you could have said we had a flat tire, but you needed to cover for me and you didn't cover for me. You basically threw me under the bus. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's brilliant. But yeah, that, that's probably about, well, there, there are others, but that's the one that always sticks out in my mind the most. That's really lovely. Thank you for sharing with us. And that kind of brings me on to what's the best way to reach out to you on social media? Sure. Um, probably the easiest way to catch up with me in every place I am is from my website, dealingwithmygrief.com. 
but on Twitter, I'm at Deal With Grief. On Instagram, Dealing With My Grief. And you can always email me at Darwin, D-A-R-W-Y-N, at dealingwithmygrief.com. Lovely. And that kind of brings me, before we go into the gratefulness challenge, I just wanted to ask, um, so we learned that your, your mother died in 2018. Will there be another podcast about that? Is that something you'll be talking about or... Yeah, you uh if if you keep listening somewhere in the um episode 150 okay. 151 somewhere in the 150s. Yeah, that's when that sort of happens. Okay. Um I can I don't know what the number is, but I can tell you that um I did in fact air an episode uh that day. So if you look for an episode um October 2nd or October 3rd of 2018, um, I forget exactly what number it is, but yeah, that's uh, where it sort of began. So I've talked about her on and off since then. Okay, lovely. I'll, um, I'll ne- I really need to catch up. <laughs> There's a lot of episodes to get through. Uh, looking forward to it. And that kind of brings us to Gratefulness Challenge. Do you know what this is? Yes. I, I, I Like you've been stalking me, I've been stalking you too. <laughs> oh, okay, great. <laughs> So you've been listening. So it's you that's been listening in the United States of America. <laughs> yes. Um, brilliant. So do you want to go first or shall I? No, I go first. Um, you know, I'm grateful for conversation. I'm grateful for the fact that people no longer feel that they have to hide the way that they're feeling or run from whatever they feel they should be doing uh, in their grief. And this podcast, uh, this episode, our conversation specifically, sort of brings that to light. I think that we all need to talk more about what we feel, how we feel, and that's just not the positive stuff. It's those things that, that actually stress us out, that actually brings us some kind of pause. So uh, I am grateful just for the art of conversation, uh, specifically in this medium. Um, That's really lovely. I echo that too. I'm really grateful for the art of conversation as well, that we can talk about not just the positives, but I think specifically for me, um, talking about bad emotions is not easy to do, depending on the environment you're in and the people you're with. And I think it's only become comfortable probably in the last six months that it feels okay to do that and I am grateful for my bad emotions and I'm grateful for the grief community because there's so many people in this grief community including yourself and I just love your podcast I think it's brilliant so anyone that hasn't listened to it or hasn't heard of it before it's called dealing with my grief um so I'm grateful for that too so thank you thank you That was the very brilliant Darwin Dave from Dealing With My Grief podcast. He was talking to me about his father who died in 1978. His parents lived through Jim Crow. I'd like to thank everyone that tuned in today that was present with us. As always, I'm your host, Colsima Ali.